Welcome to episode 6 of What's the Crack? Today's episode is on human enhancement drugs and we'll be having two interviews with experts in the field, uh, Larissa Meyer from the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime and Andreas Kiemergaard from the National Addiction Centre King's College London. And with the gang is back together. I am Elle Wadsworth and I am joined with Rob Calder and Lindsay Hines. Hello. Hi. Yay. So, what are human enhancement drugs? Well, these are simply drugs that improve an attribute or ability beyond what is necessary for good health. For example, drugs to look younger, be slimmer, grow muscles, be tanned, or to be smarter. Because this covers a wide range of substances, human enhancement drugs are actually split down into six categories. There are drugs for muscle growth or structure, such as steroids. There are drugs for weight loss. There are drugs for hair and skin. There are drugs for cognitive function, such as modafinil or Ritalin. There's drugs for sexual performance and function. And there's drugs for mood and behaviour, such as Valium or antidepressants. This is an illicit market and most can be purchased illegally over the internet. Many of human enhancement drugs are actually medicines misused recreationally, such as modafinil, which is actually a medication for narcolepsy, or Ritalin, which is actually a medication for ADHD. And there's a lot of categories of human enhancement drugs, and these podcasts are short. So we are just going to be focusing on two categories in this episode, and these are the ones that commonly get media coverage. Cognitive enhancers and muscle enhancers. So examples of media coverage would be smart drugs in the student population and steroids in the bodybuilding or sporting population. So let's begin with Lindsay talking about epidemiology of human enhancement drugs. We probably will be in by talking about the epidemiology. So... So what would you say the media coverage of drugs, human enhancement drugs, is like? See, yeah. I don't know. I think you think you tend to hear lots about um, this kind of stuff in relationship in relation to specific events like sport. You see a lot of uh, like blood doping and steroids in in sport, and obviously the Olympics and this slow trundle in the four years after the Olympics, where all the gold medals get slightly readjusted. <laughs> all those people who who came fourth in races are just hoping that one of the people who beat them gets disqualified at a later date. <laughs> Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So most of the research on steroids has focused on athletes, um, and so I was. So there's this um, basically review which pulls together all of the research on uh, steroids as an enhancement drug, and they were finding really high prevalence of use uh, in the 70s. So um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's time. Arnold Schwarzenegger's <laughs> time. But what they were also saying about that was that most of the studies at that time focused on athletes because athletes is the population where you most associate steroid use. Mm. So as studies have started to bring in more and more of the general population, the prevalence of use that we see has then gone down um, in research studies, which I suppose doesn't reflect what we think of um, in terms of steroid use. So what they're finding now is that Globally, about one in twenty people are using steroids, um, and obviously that number. Really? Can't... Yeah, one in twenty. One in twenty people are using steroids globally. Yeah, that's amazing. That's pretty high, isn't that's it? Really high. Because but... I think there's an awful lot of the world that doesn't have access to a gym with steroids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Does that include like also... prescribed steroids and things as well? No, it's no, it's. Uh... It's just illicit steroids. Illicit steroids. One in twenty. Yeah, one in twenty. <laughs> this is what happens when you put. Figures, statistics figures into real terms. It really brings home the number of people that are using stuff. I know that um, steroid users going to needle exchanges increased because, you know, they're using needles. And HIV rates and stuff going up. But the thing is that it's mostly amongst the athlete population. um, And they haven't really... It's one in 20 of the global population an athlete. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I suppose that's like dragging up the uh, prevalence. Oh my God, I'm starting to question this All now. All athletes. <laughs> yeah, just under one in 20. But just under one in 20 is about 5%. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, so it's just a bit under 5% of the global population. Wow. Illegally using uh, steroids. Um, but they haven't been finding this increase in use that we think of when we think of the media. So they're looking at, like, from 1990 to 2013, they've hardly seen any increase in use during that time. So it just made me wonder if when there's all this media talk about the prevalence of steroid use... You know, maybe that is just something which is being hyped up. It doesn't seem to be borne out in the literature. So, yeah, those are the things I found out about steroid prevalence, guys. (laughs) Do you like that? (laughs) Pretty good. Pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so that was steroids. So with neuroenhancement drugs, uh, also, you know, we mostly think of use amongst young people. So the majority of studies in that area have looked at young people. So... Rob, I got some numbers which oh, are going to shock you. Is this, is this like Limitless? It's yeah, it's just yeah. like Limitless. Oh man, I love the that film. film. What a great film. God, Bradley Tur- Cooper really conveys that character. Yeah. Great acting, Oscar worthy, if you ask me. Um, okay, yeah. So neuroenhancement drugs. Mm. Um, oh, so in a, in the United States of America, um, use like among students in that com- in that area country um, was about four in ten people. Does that shock you, Rob? Rob, I'm looking for some shock here. It's like half. It's like, yeah, almost half of this. As in the whole population or students? Student population. So when they're like surveying student population, Mm. the like, and this is the highest estimate that they've found, but it's just under four in ten people uh, that they would estimate, four in ten students, they would estimate are using neuroenhancement drugs. Mm. But all the estimates in Europe have been found to be much lower. So, hmm... Just over one in ten, like students, they would estimate in Europe uh, using cognitive enhancement drugs at the highest estimate. Um, is that is that because like in Europe we're all just fine with Pro Plus, yeah. <laughs> Pro Plus and Red Bull, yeah, it's <laughs> and just, coffee, yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. the fresh air and socialised approach to healthcare, which I think is really <laughs> carrying us through in Europe. No, they reckon in America that when they're doing these studies, they're miscategorising drug use. So when people are reporting, like. Um, drugs which are potentially neuroenhancement drugs use uh, if people are just using them recreationally and not using them in any enhancement way then some studies have still been putting it down as neuroenhancement in oxford university their um their magazine the student magazine they did a, a poll and i think out of 886 students i think it was 15 percent had used um modafinil or a neuroenhancement so that's you know it's still quite a high number mm. so are these like um Prescription drugs, or are they, is this all off um, uh, the illicit market? Well, now it will all be off the illicit market due to um, the Psychoactive Substances Act, but before they were prescription only, and so quite a lot of neuroenhancement, they're covered under different uh, acts, such as the Medi- Medicines Act, mm. or the Misuse of Drugs Act, or Food and Food and Supplements Act. Yeah. All covered over here. So modafinil before um, was prescription only, but was available online to purchase, but it wasn't available to, on sale. I spoke to Larissa Meyer, who's now based at the UN, the UNODC. Which is? <laughs> L, which is? <laughs> uh, United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime. Thank you so much. Um, but previously was uh, working in Zurich and she uh, completed an entire research project which was looking at neuroenhancement and she was looking at um, 
looking at people at university at their use of new enhancement drugs. And so over to me in the past, speaking to Larissa in the past, to hear all about what she was doing. My name is Larissa and I did a PhD on cognitive enhancement at the University of, uh, University of Zurich where I was working at the Swiss Research Institute for Public Health and Addiction. So I was employed there for more than four years and I was interested in looking at cognitive enhancement drug use to see how the prevalence in Switzerland looks like, whether it's just about students and what kind of substances are used. How did you go about... Uh finding out about cognitive enhancement drugs? I mean, were you interviewing people? Were you, um, how were you finding out from people what they were doing? Uh, we basically worked with online surveys. Um, question, we invited uh, students or also employees uh, for surveys on cognitive enhancement and asked them several questions that were showing us whether they took any kind of substances for the purpose of cognitive enhancement. Mm. Okay, cool. And, and when, you talk, when you say cognitive enhancement, what does that mean? So um, drug use for cognitive enhancement is done by people who want to enhance their cognitive performance, either memory or attention or um, working memory. So um, they want to help them study better or to enhance the concentration. We also interviewed people who had... Um, interest in social life with family or with friends and also they for example students they also wanted to have a work life balance and go out and party so they wanted to have it both uh, to be good and to learn but the time they invested for learning had to be most efficient so when they were tired they also enhanced to be more efficient during that short period of time okay so it's not always about being cleverer then it's sometimes just about I've got so much to do, I need to like get all of this finished. What was interesting was that uh, from the university point of view, the students were always enhancing in the weeks before the test, like the weeks, weeks prior to the test, mm -hmm. but not all during the year. So uh, this is also important for harm reduction and prevention because it is less bad than we thought because they are not taking these drugs regularly, but mainly due during this very specific times of an increased stress prior to test. Okay, and is there any kind of, does that feed into the idea of um, screening around exams for, uh, you know, enhancement drugs? Should universities be, um, before people go into exams, drug testing people? Um, personally, I'm totally against this idea of drug testing prior to test, because I think that most of these drugs are not really helping that people to uh, study better. So not everyone has an um, advantage of using the drugs. And if we ask people um, whether they were um, satisfied with the drug they take, um, only a minority, for example, of Ritalin was really satisfied and really reported having the expected effect. So that was also a very important finding because um, often uh, cognitive enhancement is discussed uh, in terms of chance equality. And uh, we don't believe that so many people do strongly benefit from the use, so that it provides um, that it provokes inequality for the test. Obviously, there are people profiting from use, and these are most likely when we talk about stimulants. These are most likely the people who are also having 
kind of some symptoms of an ADHD, of an attention hyperactivity deficit disorder, for example, difficulties with concentration. So these people really can profit of a substance, but it doesn't have to be stimulant. It also can be cannabis. For example, people with an undiagnosed ADHD, they also, some of them profit from cannabis use because it helps them to focus better and to be more concentrated when studying for tests. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. And did you, before you did this study, did you know that people would be using cannabis as a cognitive enhancement drug or is that something which you found out during it? Well, that was something I was assuming when I started my studies about neuroenhancement or cognitive enhancement because most uh, previous studies, they just looked at stimulant use, mainly the ADHD medication that was used for enhancement purposes. But I said there are also other substances, for example, alcohol or cannabis that are basically sedative, but that, that are also used to um, concentrate better or to take away the nervosity before the test. Um, we, we were seeing that alcohol was used more often as a cognitive enhancer when compared to retailing. That's so interesting. I would not have expected that at all. Many people have uh, used alcohol for recreational purposes. It is probably more likely that they also um, have tried this substance because they already knew the effects of the substance in some point. Mm -hmm. And obviously someone who has never drunk alcohol or just drinks one glass a weekend will probably not benefit from alcohol because it makes them more fussy and... um, more confused and not really able to study and that's what most people would think but people who are used to alcohol and basically the sedative substance they can calm down and be less stressed Mm. okay great oh thank you larissa thanks for talking to us okay so that was larissa and Lindsay. thank you thank you and now I'll talk a bit about the effectiveness of cognitive enhancers. So I'll be focusing on uh, modafinil and methylphenidate. Um, so I was looking at some uh, systematic reviews, which is a type of um, review which collects all the papers and uh, studies that have happened in a certain time frame and then summarises them. So it's like the best of them all. So I was looking at one that was done in Germany in 2010 and that was looking at uh, individuals that were both sleep deprived and both healthy. Um, So there was some difference between those who were sleep deprived and who were taking it and they were healthy. Um, Um, No, that's um, interesting. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so there is a a difference. And they Um, were taking Ritalin? No, this was with modafinil. Oh, modafinil, okay. Yeah, so the uh, results on the systematic review, the one in 2010 with Germany with methylphenidate, is that there was improvement in memory, but there was no other effects. Mm-hmm. It was just improvement on memory on both on both sides. Uh, whereas modafinil, um, there was improved attention with well-rested individuals, so healthy, not sleep-deprived. Um, but there was, also I found was interesting, that there was overconfidence. So people who were taking modafinil in these studies were saying, yeah, 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 my work was amazing, when in reality it wasn't. So the people who weren't taking modafinil were just writing an essay or whatever their tasks were and saying, yeah, it was okay or, yeah, I'd give myself a B. Whereas modafinil people were just like, A, A plus. <laughs> and then it would come back and it would be like a D. I, 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 cocaine in the music industry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I haven't looked into those studies specifically of what they were doing, but well, mm. there was actually a study that looked at people with modafinil and IQ, mm-hmm. and they said that um, the people were, it worked better in those with a lower baseline IQ. 
uh-huh. than those with a higher baseline IQ. So they were just like, you know, it was fine. They did exactly the same as they would do on modafinil, but it had an actual statistical significance with the lower IQ. There was also a, a review that was not a systematic review, but it was done in 2013 uh, uh, by a team in London. And they were stressing that the effects of all of this, of all modafinil and cognitive enhancers, is that they're inconclusive. The effects are inconclusive and there's little studies done on it. And um, the... I guess the the risk of purchasing online and what you were saying before of bringing mm. unknown quantities are not really um, known within the population that are taking them. <laughs> I did want to just say, uh, like, I I thought this um, there was this double-blind randomized ki- clinical trial, so both parties didn't know what they were taking. Okay. So the uh, s- individuals didn't know, and the uh, researchers didn't know oh. who was taking those. Best kind of trial. Yeah, best kind of trial. Um, but it was of 37 sleep-deprived healthy male doctors, which is upsetting anyway that they you know, that they have a, a wealth of sleep-deprived uh, doctors to choose from. Um, and they it used modafinil, and modafinil was shown to be effective in working memory, uh, obviously wakefulness, uh-huh. and they were making less impul- impulsive decisions. But okay. um, they had no improvement on basic motor tasks. So, for example, if you were a surgeon, you... You know, there was no improvement in your basic motor skills on doing that. Okay. Which I thought was um, interesting that they were choosing that population. But did it worsen? Because if my surgeon hasn't got an improvement in basic motor skills, I'm fine with that. But if they're decreasing ability in their basic motor tasks, I'm going to not want them performing surgery on I mean, me. If they're, like, hitting their <laughs> 15th cup of coffee of the day. Yeah. And they're shaking, <laughs> like, um... Yeah. No, exactly. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. What a good population to study yeah, as well. Exactly. Um, and the, I think I want to say the most recent um, review, but it was in the media. I think it was a uh, last year because it was done by a researcher from Oxford and Harvard, so the big ones. Um, and they did another systematic review looking at um, studies from 1990 to 2014 on uh, modafinil, um, and it was looking at the cognitive actions on healthy non-sleep deprived so this was just the healthy population um and they found that it enhances executive function um and but only half of the studies showed improvements in like in attention and memory and stuff um and so their, their review was quite positive to it and say that this is actually the potential to be created into a smart drug Okay, and now we're going to uh, talk to Dr. Andreas Kimmergaard, um, uh, who has kindly uh, offered to be here. So, uh, do you just want to tell us a little bit about your area of expertise? When I did my PhD, I was looking at um, drug services in England, and, um, and there was a transition from uh, sort of traditional heroin users, and then we started seeing new groups of people coming in using new types of drugs, so the new psychoactive substances but also the performance enhancers. So I was doing research at the time and then I kind of sort of fell upon this group of people using performance enhancing drugs. And one of the things that we were we were looking at, uh, particularly in this podcast, was uh, steroids and the use of steroids. Yes. Uh, could you just explain briefly how steroids work? Um, so anabolic steroids, they have similar effects as the um, hormone testosterone, which we all produce naturally in the body. Uh-huh. Um, so anabolic steroids do uh, something similar. Um, they relate to growth, to muscle strength, muscle growth. 
Um, they also, um, because that's what testosterone does, it gives us um, male characteristics for men, making our voices uh, lower and uh, um, making us grow bare. Um, and so anabolic, anabolic steroids also have some of those effects, but the reason that people use them is to increase strength, increase endurance, um, lose body fat, um, basically look better, look leaner, get okay. stronger. Were you? Did you see any of that kind of um, that marvelously titled roid rage? Um, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Is that I something didn't. that doesn't exist? Um, well, it's it's certainly very um, debatable. It, it's <laughs> I think it, it, it comes from um, research done with rodents. Oh um, right. But obviously, us humans, we are more nuanced in terms of how we express aggression. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we don't necessarily walk up to someone and punch them immediately. We'll have <laughs> Other ways of <laughs> trying to assert ourselves over each other. We are for warnings. And <laughs> we, exactly, and there's social dominance and um, hierarchies, and um, there's other forms of expressing aggression which apparently rodents do not have. Did um, you find anything that really surprised you? Um, well, yes and no. I think I think sort of the way they were using services which weren't really set up for them. I think to me that was. That was that was new, um, and the the difficulties of engaging. We would see uh, people coming in with a big gym bag, and they would basically fill it up with needles, and then you wouldn't see them for for a long time. So, as a sort of a service provider, mm. you had this very brief window to engage with them, and maybe that was a gym owner or, or even a, a local sort of supplier, and he would take his back of needles to the local gym, disseminate. So it was very much sort of about peer networks tapping into this resource. So I thought that was that was sort of surprising how, how different that was to other uh, using was, population. Was yeah. there a difference in like stigma with people coming for needle exchange? As in like with, uh, you know, because if I, I assume going in to exchange needles, you would have the, the umbrella of, oh, I'm a drug user. But mm. if you go in as a gym user doing steroids, I would assume that you would mentally put yourself in a different bracket. So I don't know whether that was... Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was very much related to age. So you would have experienced bodybuilders or gym owners. They would come in and they would be very comfortable using Mm -hmm. the services. But you also have young people coming in and they were in and out so fast. They they couldn't get out of there (laughs) fast enough. I think we even had one whom he actually sent his girlfriend to... uh, to get his steroid oh. needs. He was waiting in the car outside. So yes, absolutely, that was... Uh, um, okay, and uh, another on another area, you found some uh, novel ways that people were buying um, performance-enhancing drugs. Um, well, I think there's there's a lot of different performance-enhancing drugs, and I think some are very... Some have definitely sold um, sort of on the internet, but I think with the steroids... Um, that strong distribution in gyms remain and so I went into this one gym and he showed me everything so he showed me all the sort of the whole the whole place and then he opened one drawer which was full of, sort of legal diet supplements and then next to it he opened another drawer which was just full of steroids growth hormones wow. um, just sitting there in the uh, so the both of them were sort of concealed under the uh, under the desk so so he was sort of supplying to everyone in that gym and I think it was just nice for people to be able to come to him for for advice and information so it's, I mean everyone in that gym certainly preferred to buy off him and not go 
somewhere else. So it's it's very sort of old fashioned in a way now that we know what's happening on the internet. Yeah. Sorry, with dealers offering like harm in my, were they offering advice with their steroids then, like um, about how to do it safely or? Yes, that, that was something that came up in the research, and and obviously it's. I mean, it's a discussion of whether or not it's safe or not. I mean, there's unknown, um, unknown things with 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 counterfeit medication, which it's the same as with all other um, substances. We know that. So all the knowledge of a, a gym owner, a doctor, lab, a bodybuilder is not going to do him any good unless he actually knows exactly what is in the product that he's selling. And do people develop dependence to steroids? That's another f- of sort of contagious area where there's been a lot of debate. Um, there's a, a US-led research group um, uh, which firmly believes that it has a potential for dependency. Um, other people, other researchers claim that we need to look at it um, in terms of thinking about physical or psychological dependence. So. Presumably, there's not physical dependence, but you might become dependent in terms of upholding the body image. You you don't want to lose the muscle that you just gained, or you don't want to feel weak when coming off the steroids. You want to be able to keep lifting more and more. So, in that sense, that could be that drive to continue to use. Okay, so people who are just using steroids for their body image are taking them all from the NHS. Can these people not buy a needle somewhere else? I think it's a fair argument. I mean, and and, and it, I think it goes even further because obviously some services have limited money. So every time a steroid user comes in and fills up a gym bag, it's less resources to devote to opiate-dependent mm. people who we know need um, think it- this service. And I think one of the things that we do have data is that to say that abscesses is an issue, um, abscesses in the shoulder if you if you inject um in the same place a lot of times um and and it looks like the more people are now seeking hospital treatment to deal with those abscesses so it could be such a small operation and that's a huge cost so in that perspective providing needle and and proper education of injecting far outweighs the cost of of having to do operation in hospitals so it's it's a but it's complex, isn't it? It always is with drugs, but <laughs> yeah. it's needed. a cliche of <laughs> yeah. drug resources, isn't it? Um, okay, thank you, uh, no thank problem. you, Andreas. Thanks very much. Um, and some of the uh, some of the issues you raised there about um, addiction and whether people can be addicted to steroids, we're going to be discussing in next week's um, podcast on uh, on what is addiction. That completes another episode of What's the Crack. A quick shout out to the Addiction Studies MOOC, which is a massive open online course run by uh, here at the National Addiction Centre. So if you want to learn about addiction for free, check out the link that I'm going to post on ACAST. Speaking of non-free courses, Lindsay, do you know any? (laughs) Yeah, we also at the National Addiction Centre have a master's that you can do in addiction studies, which is, uh, I don't know, a one-year postgraduate course. Obviously, Ellen Rob, both graduates of the addiction studies master's alumni. course yeah. alumni yeah. yeah so great adverts guys just our best adverts for it Aww. thanks for that thanks <laughs> we'll, for everything you do we'll put more uh, links on ACAST that you can find more information um So in the last uh, episode, I mentioned that we'd be talking about microdosing LSD. Uh, sorry for lying, but uh, <laughs> we couldn't put that into this episode. But we will be doing a, a separate episode down the line that, uh, on psychedelics that covers microdosing LSD. Uh, next episode in two weeks, we'll be at, we will be asking, what is addiction? 
quite a broad question that I hope we can all answer. Uh, great. So, see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.